Hey everyone, this is Erica Lucas, your host and founding member of VEST, an organization connecting women across industries, regions, and career levels, so that together we can expedite the pipeline of more women in positions of power and influence. Welcome to another episode of the Vester Podcast, where we explore the invisible barriers holding women back in the workplace and share stories of women building power collectively. What can I do to enhance or strengthen my personal brand or my professional brand? And what are those things I need to avoid? Because they're huge distractions. And when I think about this, I'm not thinking about the perfectly appointed and curated social media facade or brand we create online. I'm thinking about how do I step into everyday life and how do I make sure the things that I do either preserve my personal brand, um, enhance it, and what are those things I can make sure I don't do that would be a major distraction. Most people confuse personal brand with reputation, but they're two very different things. Everyone has a reputation. The first impressions we make, the relationships we form with managers and peers, and how we communicate, all of these things impact how other people see us. Our personal brand, on the other hand, is much more intentional. It's how we want other people to see us. Intentionally creating our brand is much more powerful than letting the world create one for us. Because having a clear brand helps us position ourselves as an authority in our industry, it helps us elevate our credibility, and it helps us differentiate ourselves from the competition so that ultimately we can advance our careers and have a larger impact. In this session, we talk to Jill Hughes, Assistant Vice President of Advancement at the University of Oklahoma and former Disney executive about how we can intentionally develop our brand and the challenges we might experience along the way. For Jill's full bio and show notes, go to www.vesther.co forward slash podcast. This recording was part of a more intimate coaching session with Vest members and has been repurposed to accommodate this episode. Jill, you've gone from being in corporate America to completely shifting careers in academia and, 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 and working in philanthropy as well. And so tell us a little bit about that. Tell us about that shift. And did you have to rebrand yourself after moving from one end to the other? Sure. Well, I, um, like many of you, I'm sure have had um, a long love affair with the Disney company. And when I learned during my time as an OU student that I could actually be an intern there and get paid to work there and maybe even get some college credit there. I hopped on that opportunity um, and knew I wanted to go back. So after I graduated and consulted with another company, made my way back there, as Erica mentioned, and had a fabulous eight or almost nine year career there before I needed to get a little closer to home. And um, it was really at that pivot when I was forced to think about what kind of company do I want to associate myself with? I believed in the Disney brand and what it represented. It was easy for me to align my personal brand, my personal values with the Disney company. And I knew I didn't want to just take a job at a random, you know, Fortune 100 organization that may or may not align with what I value. And, um, 
when you work at Disney, anyone you've ever known in your whole life comes to visit. And certainly that meant lots of my colleagues from my days at OU visited. And one of my colleagues said, you know, hey, have you ever thought about coming to work at OU? I had not, um, didn't think about working at my alma mater. But the more I thought about it, the more I realized I could associate with the brand and the values of the higher education space, right? I knew that for me, education provided opportunities and I knew that I could get in line with going out and securing private money to help people secure higher education, which eventually would change their life. And so it was a really thoughtful um, decision to, to pick something I really felt like I could align with personally and professionally. I think that made the pivot from corporate America to academia easier because I could align with the work. Love that. And value is such an important, you know, identifying our values, prioritizing our values. Um, it, it's, so, it's such an important exercise. And a lot of us really don't, you know, we just were reactive to it and we never take the time to actually identify what those values are. So I love that you actually took the time to do that. Um, tell us about what what is a world ambassador for Disney? What did you do there and how did you have to show up and how did that influence how, you know, you develop your personal identity or your personal brand? Well, thank you. So as um, you mentioned, Walt Disney actually created the ambassador program himself. He created it when he was working to open Disneyland. And there was such public interest in what Disneyland was going to be that they had dignitaries and celebrities and elected officials and all kinds of VIPs coming to Disneyland on a regular basis. And Walt would show each of these people around and introduce him to this new thing that he had created. And it finally got to a a point where he needed help. So he went over to the guest relations department, which is that team that helps people plan their visits or deal with issues. And he asked a guest relations hostess to act as his ambassador, as an extension of himself to help cover the load of of the many visitors and VIPs that he wanted to host. And that was really the birth of the ambassador program that lives on today. All of the theme parks that are associated, all the Disney parks around the world have an ambassador or an ambassador team that typically work on a year or a two-year assignment. And their job is to be the goodwill emissary to the world of that theme park. So they may be working with visiting um, elected officials. They may be working in the community. They may be taking characters to visit sick children in hospitals. They might be hosting press events when the, the Disney company opens a new theme park or launches into the cruise industry. So every day is different. Um, And in addition to lots of external work on behalf of the Disney brand, the, the role comes with a lot of internal work celebrating the cast members or the employees of the company at signature events. And so uh, no two days look alike, no two years look alike. And, um, you know, when you think about branding, um, in my case, it was a one-year assignment where I was paid to represent a different brand than myself, right? I was paid to represent the Disney company. And in my case, the Walt Disney World Resort for a full year, um, which was exciting and humbling and incredibly fun, but really caused me at the end of that year to exhale, take a step back and think about okay, now I have to dissect myself as I enter into a different role at Disney after this one year assignment into, you know, 
or really walk into what's my brand and and what am I going to value and what am I going to put out there because I don't have to stand behind this this Disney corporate brand like I did before. Um, so that's a little bit about the role and what the days and weeks look like. And um, I loved working with the Disney company. I said before, because I could align with the values, I could align with um, the culture. So it was easy for me to represent the brand, but I also even in stepping away from the ambassador program into another role at Disney really had to think about, okay, what does that look like for me? And how did you, how did you transition out of that? Right? Like what were the things? Um, Cause again, it's like, how, how do we think about this tangibly? Like as you showed up for, for the company, you mentioned you had to develop like it was, not necessarily your own brand, but you were representing somebody else's brand. So can you walk us through like your thinking as you went into that role, but also as you stepped out and then became your own individual brand? Well, you know, when you think about the Disney company and you think about if you've walked into one of their theme parks, you know, there's the sights and the smells, there's music playing, like there's a very intentional collection of activity designed to create a story and make you feel immersed in that story. And that is the brand essence of that theme park or that attraction or that resort. And one of the things I love about Disney is they go to great lengths to prevent distractions. You don't walk into Tomorrowland and see a cowboy. You don't walk into Adventureland and see a space cadet that would be a distraction from the story. I would also ask you, you know, if you've ever been talking to a friend and they've got food in their teeth, where do you focus? You focus on that food in their teeth because it's a huge distraction, right? And so one of the things I loved about the Disney company was they were so thoughtful about the atmospheres they would create in the clothing they would ask their employees to wear or not wear, in the, in the way they asked their cast members to behave all in an effort to prevent distractions. And so that's something I took with me as I transitioned into my kind of new season at Disney and that I still take with me today. What can I do to enhance or strengthen my personal brand or my professional brand? And what are those things I need to avoid? Because they're huge distractions. And when I think about this, I'm not thinking about the perfectly appointed and curated social media facade or brand we create online. I'm thinking about how do I step into everyday life and how do I make sure the things that I do either preserve my personal brand, um, enhance it, and what are those things I can make sure I don't do that would be a major distraction. And, you know, just to get very hands-on and practical, I mean, it's, it's, it's the small things, right? It's coming in with a positive attitude. It's being prepared and and ready to go and reading materials in advance of a strategy conversation or a meeting. It's how I run my meetings. Am I organized? Do I clearly define the purpose? Do we know what the outcomes are? Um, In collaborating with my colleagues, right? All of these things are very small day-to-day, minute-to-minute opportunities that enhance what our brand is or distract I mean, I'm sure we've all had experiences where you've worked with a colleague and they've said something wrong or they've done something wrong that you've said, man, I didn't see that coming. That's so out of character for her, right? It was a big distraction from what you knew to be true. 
And so I'm not suggesting that we live our lives as robots and that we expect to be perfect at all times, but I do think we can be thoughtful about avoiding distractions. Um, you know, are you oversharing your personal life, right? What boundaries are you putting around that? Um, when you walk into a meeting, are you sitting in the back of the room or are you sitting right up front? If it's a board table, are you sitting at the table or are you kind of standing in the perimeter? Like these very small little decisions all enhance or distract from our personal brand. Um, and there's something that we want to think about every day. And and then when we do have those moments um, when we're not our best selves, where we know we didn't get it right, then saying, you know what, I, I did this just a few weeks ago. I'd had a really tough meeting um, and got some hard news from um from a really high level um, person in my organization. And my very next meeting I have with a direct report, I was not my best self and I was scattered. I was distracted and things did not go well. And I just called him a few minutes after he left my office. And I just said, listen, I'm really sorry. I had a tough meeting before you came in and I was not my best self with you. And I, I'm really sorry. We need to start over. Can we have this conversation on another day? And I knew that it was out of character for me. He knew it was out of character for me. And the fact that I picked up the phone and called him, he said later, he really appreciated because it, it reiterated that that wasn't a shift. That wasn't a new forward focus. That was just a blip. And we all have them. Um, and so I'm not suggesting that, again, we're perfect robots, but I do think we need to be thoughtful about those things that happen, which we know they will, um, that take us off our game or that maybe keep us from presenting our best self and then owning up to them. We often hear this, um, you know, bring your whole self to work. But you also mentioned, which I think it's important to talk about, that sometimes maybe oversharing is over. What is oversharing? Uh, what is not, what, how do we set boundaries? We do want to bring our whole selves to the workplace, our whole selves to everything that we contribute, but we also need boundaries, right? Even for our own protection or our own identity or how we want to show up. Can you talk to us a little bit about that and your approach on how you handle that? Yeah. I mean, I just, I think we need to be thoughtful about what components of ourselves we bring to various aspects of our life. And for me, um, I love the richness of our differences in background and life experiences and trials and tribulations. And I love, you know, being vulnerable and connecting with my colleagues. So my day-to-day -day work isn't just monotonous and robotic, but at the same time, um, there's things I don't bring to my professional workplace because they would be a distraction. Um, and because we have social media, because we're all friends on social media, we know more about our colleagues and, and our, our friends um, now more than ever. And so I think it's just a question of asking yourself, you know, what do I want to bring to the office? What do I want to bring um, to my, my startup? And what do I not? What do I need to compartmentalize and maybe leave at home? Um, I was just talking with a new friend um, at Disney this past weekend who who represents the Disney brand. And we had this very same conversation and he, he talked about how, you know, he always wants to be authentic and, and get to know his guests. But at the same time, if he's going through a breakup, that's not something he's going to bring up. It, it's not germane to what they're doing. It would be a distraction. 
you know, save that for your dear friends, save that for your confidence, confidants. Um, I just think we've gotten the habit of oversharing and I work in higher ed. So I work with lots of wonderful students and um, you know, we talk to them all the time about be careful what you share because it's there forever. And I'm sure as hiring managers, all of you are really thoughtful about the employees that you're, you're hiring and you're looking at their whole selves, how they show up on social media, how they show up on the, on, um, on the internet. And so we just have to be really careful and maybe I'm prude. Maybe I'm, um, naive, but there's just certain things I don't want to bring to every aspect of my life. So I am uh, Sue Ringus. I'm the owner of Social Greenery, which offers living potted Christmas tree rentals and succulent potting bars. Um, I also work at OU part time, so I know Jill. <laughs> um, and I think this is, this is such a great conversation because. Um, it seems like particularly for small businesses, maybe people love to feel like they know the person, like they know the, the, the face behind the brand. Um, and I think that's such a balance between what is your personal brand versus you as a representative of your organization. So I would love to think, hear more about how you differentiate that. Well, what I can tell you is we've all been in that situation where Maybe we've tried to curate a brand or curate um, something that isn't authentic, and then it becomes a chore, right? So the last thing we want to do is try to create a brand that's a facade or that's fake, because then living it every day is not fun and is a challenge. So really that assessment of what are your core values, what do you believe in is where I start. And then I tried to, to think about how I can enhance my corporate brand or the entity I work with, with, you know, what I value. Um, There've been lots of changes at OU. And in the last few years, we've had some kind of big, difficult days. Um, And, you know, that was a, it's easy to have an alignment with your corporation or your entity when things are going really well, but when things are um, challenging, um, it can be difficult. And so, That's where I have to say my core values are respecting, appreciating, valuing everyone. Um, I believe in time and energy and effort to secure funds that are going to help the next generation secure degrees, which are going to change lives. And regardless of leadership transitions or trials and tribulations, I know at the end of the day that the work I'm doing is going to help the next generation. And so I can stay true to those core values, even if we're having leadership transitions or we're going through lots of changes. Um, I would think as a small business owner, you as a founder get to craft your organization and you can inform the values of that organization which may make it a lot easier for you to align immediately, right? If it's literally something that you're creating and 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 designing, um, it may be that a big part of the people, you know, the reason people come to you and want to work with you is because of not only the product you make, but the Sue that you are, Sue Ringus, because you're pretty awesome. So I think for entrepreneurs, um, it's a fair question to say, you know, how much of my self am I going to pour into this entity? But then we have this very, you know, real issue of then when Sue, you're ready to someday sell your company, 
because you've made it so successful and you're ready to move on. And, uh, you know, an investor comes along and they want to buy the company. Then there's the big question of, will the company succeed if Sue's not there, right? Because she's so much a part of this entity. So we have to be really thoughtful and calculated about how much of our personal brand we associate with our corporations. I also think um, it's really easy on the other spectrum to get so lost in a corporate brand Mm -hmm. that then you lose oneself. I have a dear friend who was an executive for decades with the Target company, and we kind of knew him as the Target guy. And then when he left Target, you know, you had to kind of start over. And so, um, that's something too. What are the boundaries we're going to keep so we don't lose our identity, not only in the brands we represent, but in the work that we do for that brand? I love that, Jill, because I I say that often to entrepreneurs and or corporate, I mean, anyone, you know, when you attach your, your identity to a company, to a role, to a job, to a, even a relationship, what happens if that ends? Like, you know, that's where you see a lot of mental health issues, a lot of like, because you associated your identity is so tied to something and then that's something, nothing is certain, right? And that's something, you know, company goes down, a company fails, um, you get let go, uh, relationships break, your role changes. um, And if you, if your identity is so tied to this, so I always say, you know, you're more than your company and you're, or you're bigger than your company and your company's bigger than you, right? Like, um, so, so I love that you touched on that, Jill. If you don't know how to uh, come up with your values, Leah shared a a site, a link um, on how to come up. It's an exercise. It looks like on how to identify your core values. We also share a link on Monday's email um, we have a vast li- a guide too on how not just identify but organize your values. So be sure to check those resources. Um, also, I just want to mention too uh, that um, I love Jill when you said if you're not authentic, it becomes a shore. And I love how you said that. That that needs to be a quote. <laughs> um, all right, uh, Eliane, are you ready yes. to share? Yes, I'm sorry. I was taking my dog out so it doesn't bark while I'm talking. Um, so my question to you, Jill, uh, by the way, I'm Eliane Hurtado, um, and I just recently, for the past eight months, been the owner and founder of um, Galera Business Consulting. Um, but my question to you is on the rebranding and not branding. Um, um, and I want to see how you approach when you rebrand or reinvent yourself with the response from how the public see you with those changes. Um, and I'm just going to um, give you an example. One thing that that stayed with me years ago, I did a conference. Oh, I went to a conference where it was a rebranding conference. And they mentioned Arnold Schwarzenegger as an example, how he started being a bodybuilder and then actor and governor. And it's like he, he reinvented himself easily. And I, that stayed with me. And that's basically what I've been doing in the past um I would say six years, I went from private sector for over 20 years to nonprofit and now being my own, <laughs> on my own. And I think that I, I felt confident with the changes, but sometimes when the public, how the public see you is like, so what are you doing now? What, what is it that you do now? And it just, that make me feel insecure. Not, I mean, I'm like super cool with the changes I'm making. It's just when you get those comments. So I just want to know 
from your point of view, the rebranding, how you approach those uh, challenges? Thank you for the question and congratulations to you. You know, if you think about the example you posed with Arnold Schwarzenegger, it sounds like he went through a lot of evolution, a lot of changes, but also think about the things that didn't change. He was a big personality. He was a positive personality. He was a strong personality. And so although there were these pivots or these kind of um, things associated with him that changed, there were many things that stayed the same. And one of the things that we benefit from when we have a personal brand is kind of that core um, set of things that don't change. So I have the pleasure of, on occasion, working with Sue Ringus, who's on this call. I don't know much about her startup, but I know about Sue and I trust Sue. And so I know that if Sue's at OU or if Sue's at her startup, Sue is going to be successful because those are things about her that do not change, right? Um, I know that Erica is a force to be reckoned with, regardless if she's doing work with angel investors or she's working with other women. I know she's a force. Those things don't change. So I would ask you to think about, even though the skills or the products you're offering or the work you're doing has been changing, I bet there's things about you that haven't changed at all. And I would focus on those when, um, when you feel uncertain that part of you hasn't changed. How you're applying your talents and skills have changed. And the other thing I would mention is, you know, one of the things that the Disney company does very well is they are a storytelling company. So when I came to OU, one of the first divisions I was working with was engineering. And I didn't understand what an engineer was, you know. And when I sat down with our experts and I started learning about the work, I realized they were solving big problems. So I tried to take really complex concepts and break it down. And, you know, one of my favorite scientists that is, is super successful and storied in his career does the important work of making the mammogram picture more clear while delivering less radiation. But I had to distill that from him over countless conversations. Right. And so I would I would think about in explaining your work now, what's the story that you're going to tell? What problem are you solving? How can you make it easy to understand so your friends, your colleagues can clearly articulate what you do? And then the other thing Disney does very well is they create key messages and they use them again and again and again and again. So once you identify the very easy way you're going to articulate what you do and how you're currently using your skills, then creating key messages and using them over and over and over again until people are so sick of hearing it, they know, oh, I know exactly what she's doing. Hi, um, I'm Arielle again. I introduced myself earlier. Um, and I think we've touched on this a little bit, but we're, my husband and I are in the starting process of building our company. And what we found is people are just like she was saying, connecting more to us as people and as a couple um, and the energy that we bring and the brand that we have um, as people, which I think is really great. And that's really kind of propelling us forward, but it kind of gives me a little trepidation as far as how do we grow and how do we, I know that we were talking about making sure that we have consistent values, but what is it, how do you identify what it is that people are connecting to necessarily 
to make part of your brand to teach to your employees as you start adding employees? Well, first I would say, you know, I think it, there's, there's different seasons, right, of your work. And in this season of your work, in startup phase, it sounds like your personal brand and you as, as a part of the a co-founder are critical to whether people want to be involved or not. So I think it's totally okay in this season to be pouring into those relationships um, and know that that your personal brand is at this season really critical. Is this going to be a make or break organization based on what I see Ariel doing? Absolutely. Let's be all in. Then it's okay to pivot as you get to kind of the next season. And maybe then it's starting to focus in on the, the, the values of the organization, not so much Ariel's values, but the values of the organization, knowing that if you're going to scale and be sustainable, you're always going to want to have the essence of you and your partner in that organization, but you may not be at the forefront, right? You might be woven in into some organizational values, right? Um, is that helpful? Absolutely. Jill, walk us through, if you were our coach, Right, which you are today. Um, how would you coach us on like what what process do you go through when you were when you're intentionally developing your brand? Right, like what what would you say, Erica? Do this exercise to get to know yourself. Like I love how you and um, who was it, Eliane, were talking about just being consistent. You know what what doesn't change, regardless of what you're doing. What doesn't change? How would you walk us through the process of you know, identifying what our personal brands should be? Well, I think as women, as nurturers, as supporters, as partners, um, we're not always good, as we know, about tooting our own horn. And in many cases, we've elected to be servant leaders, right? And so we lead from behind. Um, and all of that is valuable and and actually the way I choose to lead. But what we don't do that we always need to be better at is communicating our impact. And so, you know, as I'm preparing for my annual review, or if I'm preparing to meet with a contact, or if I'm preparing to meet with a division lead, I'm going to be pulling data that's going to show my impact. So it's not, I feel this, I think that we're going to have clearly articulated data that show my impact, right? So that's going to be one way I'm always going to be um, enhancing my brand. And what I did, you know, when I first came to OU and I was traveling on the road, I was submitting pre-trip reports with here are all the things I'm going to accomplish. I was submitting post-trip reports. Here's all of the outcomes, right? I was overtly communicating up and around about my work, both that work that was planned and the work that was completed. And then when I was having milestone moments, when I was, you know, hitting certain marks, I was proactively communicating outcomes. And again, not feeling, not subjective, but data. How can I show the impact of my work? So that's that's one thing I would encourage you to do. I would also encourage you to have that mentor or that coach or that competent so you can close the door and you can be mad and you can be frustrated and you can let it all out. And then a dear friend says, okay, now what are you going to do about it? And then thoughtfully make the rational plan. Okay, I'm going to go address this frustration in this thoughtful, rational way. I'm going to leave the emotion behind and I'm going to just stay really rational and fact-filled and and focused. Um, And I'm going to address this issue, but it's going to be after I've settled down and I've got my ducks in order. So I spend a lot of time talking with other women about their frustrations. Great, get it all out. 
Now let's go make a really rational, thoughtful plan to address it. Um, and um, I'm also thinking about just the little things. I talked with a colleague recently about how she ran a meeting. I mean, she's super knowledgeable. She's been the president of her industry. She knows how to do the work. And the way she ran a meeting just looked frazzled and unorganized when I knew she's a superstar, right? So it was about sitting down, being thoughtful. You know, I always use the PPP model. Um, What's the purpose? What's the process? What's the payoff, right? So you don't have to use those words, but I always go in with the purpose of our meeting is blah, 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 blah. And I hope by discussing blah, 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 we'll leave here with outcomes, da, 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 da. If I'm not using that language, I use that in planning for my meetings or conversations and not just groups. I mean, even one-on-one, the purpose of the Zoom today is hopefully to share best practices. I hope by talking and having conversation, we all leave here with tactical tips that we can use the minute we leave this room, right? So I use it to organize my thinking. I use it to organize my meetings. I use it to organize my conversations, PPP. And then... um, I forgot what the third thing was. Part of us do is to address biases that maybe we see in the workplace. And you mentioned a word that often, um, you know, is used to describe women like rational, you know, are women rational? And when we show any type of emotion or when we question, even, even if there's no emotion and we're doing everything you're saying in terms of like using data um, and everything, if we dare question something, sometimes we're like, oh, you're just being irrational or, oh, you're just being emotional or you're too close to the deal. Um, so how can we, cause I agree with you and in, in that, like, just that's part of being efficient, right. And how we make our arguments and get what we want out of whether it's a meeting or, or, or an outcome that we're going after, but also how do we address the bias that exists when we're being intent, we're doing all of these things that we're talking about, about building our brand and showing up consistently and, and, and living our values, but we're still labeled things like, oh, you're emotional or you're coming across as too close to the subject or whatever. What advice do you have for that? I remember talking with a, an HR director from a large energy company, uh, and she was telling me about how she coached lots of male executives um, and some of the tools she gave those male executives about leading women and something she said to me um, really spoke to me. She told the male executives, if a woman comes into your office and she closes the door, closes the door and she starts crying, she's probably not sad. She's probably very mad. And what I think she was trying to convey was Sometimes when we get so frustrated and we show emotion, it's not because we're sad about what's happening. It's because we're angry. It's because we know it's not right. And that emotion comes out and sometimes it comes out with tears. So what did that tell me? Well, number one, it told me, Jill, you're not crazy. When you get really, really mad and then you get emotional or teary about it, that's a normal reaction. Number two, it told me, I'm not sad. I'm angry. And the reason I'm angry is because I know this isn't right, which then number three tells me I have to address it. Well, then that begs the next question. I feel uncomfortable. I don't like conflict. I don't want to ruffle feathers. So how am I going to address it? That's where I think we go back to being thoughtful, using data, being rational, 
using a trusted partner to really get the venting and the emotion out and then make a plan. And then if for us, we do better delivering maybe in um, written word, maybe it's just sending a really rational set of thoughts in advance and saying, I would love to discuss this with you at your convenience or depending on the person you're working with. I mean, you'll know the best approach, but data, clear examples, and then preparing to do a lot of listening, really trying to um, provide space to then let the other person respond. Hi, I'm Anoink. Um, so I, I want to go back to, to what you just said for just a moment, Jill, because I think um, I think our job in VEST is to really question some of the misogynistic practices that happen in a male-dominated work environment. And while, you know, I don't encourage my office or my, you know, my folks to come in and cry regularly, um, I do think that suggesting that they change their behaviors or alter them to be uh, reflective of what makes the men comfortable in that setting is something I'm not comfortable with. Right. And um, so can you talk a little bit about, right, right. I, I work at a think tank, right. So data is everything that we use all day long. I'm, I'm all about the data. I'm all about, you know, driving to decisions. Um, but I'm challenged with the thought that we should be altering our behavior frequently to meet the expectations of men, specifically white men, right, that have dominated the space for so long and have created a really white-based culture in the way that we approach our work that creates, you know, the stereotypes that we know around emotions or, right, just bringing feelings themselves to the office, not just for women, but I think for all people of color. So I just, um, if we're going to, if, if we create space spaces throughout those conversations, I think this is probably one of them. So I just wanted to kind of push back on that a little bit and see if maybe I was the only one that that landed with or, or um, kind of what your additional thoughts might be. Thank you. I really appreciate your comments. I would suggest um, versus professing that people act a certain way. I am not my best self when I am very, very angry or very, very emotional. And so I find it very helpful for me personally to vent and share how I feel with someone else that I trust and then devise a plan for me. That makes me more comfortable. And I feel like I can more clearly articulate um, what needs to be shared. But certainly that doesn't have to be the approach for everyone. I feel like I'm my best self if I can um, follow the approach of being thoughtful and rational and getting my thoughts on paper and, and, and being planful. But that doesn't suggest that other people don't need to behave in a different way. And I would also suggest that I'm having really authentic emotional connections with colleagues, um, you know, very moving conversations with with my direct reports, many of whom are male. So our emotions are there. I just know in order for me to deliver the content I want to share, sometimes I need to get myself in a different headspace. On awake, I think my flippant comment was very much, you articulated it much better, but I think like my challenge is when I'm serious 
and I deal with really serious issues on a regular basis with people who don't take it very seriously. And they think that I'm angry and they make comments, clear comments that they think that I'm angry. I'm not losing my train of thought. I'm very, very focused. I'm just very serious. Um, And I think that there's something that needs to continue around that like culture of, yeah, like it makes some white men uncomfortable to be around me to talk about our issues around race and gender identity in our public schools. That makes them uncomfortable. They don't want to talk about it. And we're going to legislate the heck out of it all. Great. I'm going to be very serious and very, you know, and I'm not going to change my, you know, sort of way, but it is, it's, for me, I found, I'm just like, I'm becoming more comfortable in an environment when other people are comfortable. I mean, when other people are uncomfortable, like that's okay. You could be uncomfortable. Like you should be uncomfortable. These are really challenging things that our young people are going through. So I don't know. I find that balance there too. And then sometimes I mean, I know I just need to get something done. I will put on my happy princess face and make it happen. That's fine. I'm able to do that, but I just can't not be serious when we're talking about such serious issues in very male dominated um, and in a place and in a culture where we have allowed our young people to not even be treated as, you know, full members of our society. Absolutely. Um, well, first of all, let me just say VES was intentionally designed to have these conversations and they're respectful conversations. We need to do more of this. We need to talk about this and we need to challenge ourselves. Sometimes it's keeping accountability on ourselves like, hey, I know I have a lot of biases and I have a lot of things that, you know, I just grew up, you know, especially and especially because we as women didn't really uh, build our careers with a lot of peer groups and safe spaces like this to have these type of conversations. Um, so perhaps that's why we haven't challenged the workplace as much as we should. So I welcome. Thank you, Jill, for given us your your share. Thank you, Anna Wake, for, for challenging and Amy for sharing too. I would say, you know, as a Latina, I will say I, I, I tend to side with that because every time I'm making a point, if I'm clear and concise and have all of the data in the room, I'm always gonna be, oh, she's just a passionate Latina, right? Uh, and I know some black women in this room and, and others that have shared with me, they will always be the angry, Black women in the room, right? So it, there's just stereotypes and biases that come across, even when we're not trying to. Um, it, it's not the emotion; it's just the assertiveness, right? Like when we're assertive, we're mean, angry, passionate. Uh, but when our male colleagues are, um, it's confidence. It's uh, you know demanding the or commanding the room, and it's all of that. So I think it's just important that we always talk about that. And I appreciate everyone being open to it and being um, and, and, and challenge us each other to to think about those things. Jill, how can uh, this is this has been incredible? Thank you so much for taking the time to to talk to us. Um, how can people get a hold of you to continue this conversation and then just to get to know you? Um, and and develop a a relationship there. You can reach out anytime. I'm in the VEST app. Um, I remembered the third thing. So in addition to purpose, process, payoff, the other thing that um, I learned from my days at Disney is practice, practice, practice. So whether you're preparing for a difficult conversation or an important meeting, I know it sounds really silly, but um, 
they don't leave attention, you know, they don't leave details to chance. They practice, they practice, they practice. And so um, that would my, that was my third other little hint. Um, It sounds silly, but I can give you example after example after example where um, practicing and being prepared made a world of difference. Um, And I just would hope that in this conversation around brand, you know, when we think about brands, especially corporate brands, it's it's a big thing that's floating out there and it's between us and the corporate entity. And when I talk about your professional brand or your personal brand, I hope that that's not something you put in between you and others, because I think if we're going to have these really critical conversations, the bridge of trust between you and your colleagues, you and your leaders, you and your customers is really critical. And your personal brand um, is part of that structure in the bridge of trust. Um, And when you have that bridge of trust, you can walk over it and deal with difficulties, um, with hard conversations, with real issues. And it's a lot harder to have those conversations and deal with those hard issues when you don't have that bridge of trust. So um, I hope that even though we've talked about brand, you don't see it as something out there floating. Yeah. It's a barrier between the real you and other people, that it's a part of the bridge between you and other people. If you enjoyed this episode, leave us a review and subscribe to our podcast for future episodes. You can also join the conversation by becoming a best member. Go to www.vester.co and apply today.